This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1 this morning, if you would. We're continuing our series uh, through the book of Romans, verse by verse. We find ourselves 11 messages deep today. If you've missed anything so far, you can always get caught up on the Huikala app uh, that has uh, access to all the previous messages that we preached. I also encourage you, if you don't yet have the Huikala app on your mobile device, take time right now, grab your phone, download it right now, because it's going to do this. It's going to show you everything that we're going to cover today, all the notes uh, from today's message, uh, all the verses that we're going to take a look at are all found in the Huikala app. And so if you open up the app, click on Romans, click on today's message, which is Understanding the Wrath of God, Part 2. Click on the button that says Fill in Notes, and that's going to allow you the opportunity to see uh, everything that's going down today. If you don't do that, just grab a sheet of paper and jot down some thoughts, Really, really good stuff from Romans chapter 1 that you're going to see uh, this morning. I want to encourage you to just uh, put some of those things uh, down on pen and paper. If you're a first-time guest with us here today, thanks so much for being with us. We're delighted to have you as our guest, whether you're just visiting the island for a little bit or you're looking for a church home. We consider it an honor and a privilege uh, that you would worship Jesus with us today. Before you leave today, be sure to stop by and say hey to me. I'm going to be on the sidewalk uh, outside. Uh, I, I hang out there until the last person leaves every single Sunday. Uh, so if you ever need to talk to your pastor, that's where you can find me. Uh, but especially if you're a first-time guest, stop by and say howdy uh, on your way out here today. I'd love to get the opportunity to, to meet you. Romans chapter 1, we find ourselves, uh, again, we've been uh, taking a look through uh, the book of Romans. We're just going verse by verse. We find ourselves, uh, this is our 12th message uh, today. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse number 18 is where we're going to be at uh, today. Uh, we're going to st- uh, start off in verse number 13, just by way of context. So far, Paul is just saying to the church at Rome, hey guys, it's Paul. Uh, Paul's never been to, to, to Rome before, so he's writing a letter to a church that he's never visited. Hey guys, it's Paul. I'm an apostle. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to coming and seeing you. I've heard a lot of great things about you and your church. It's worldwide famous, the things that uh, God's doing in you and through you at your church. I hope to be able to come to you soon. Uh, I can't wait to meet you because I want to encourage you, but I also want to be encouraged by you. I can't wait to get there to preach about Jesus and to preach the gospel. Verse number 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, and then he goes on verse number 17 says that the the just uh, the the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel and we're going to live by faith because that's what Christians do we live faith by faith and then everything takes a really really intense turn uh, where he begins to talk about the wrath of God. And today's message is it's pretty heavy. It's a continuation of last week's message. And so uh, if you were here last week, this week is just going to be kind of a little bit more of the same. But I'm telling you this, if you've ever read through Romans 1, and if you haven't yet, you need to, because it's only going to get tougher from here. Uh, again, Romans chapter 1 talks about the wrath of God revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. And then it talks about how that gets poured out. Uh, and so it's just really, really intense all the way through the end of the chapter. So the next, I tell you, the, probably the next four or five weeks at, at Hui Call are going to be intense on Sunday mornings as we uh, preach uh, this idea of the wrath of God and how it's uh, poured out by God on mankind. And so uh, I, don't, I say that to continue to say, continue to invite your friends, family members, and coworkers because everybody needs to hear uh, what we're going to be talking about for sure. Uh, but, but at Hui Call, we don't preach the things that are comfortable and the things that are, are cheerful. We pre- preach the whole counsel of God. We preach what 
the Bible says. And so everybody needs to know what God's Word says. So uh, here we are this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse, we're going to start verse number 13 and go through verse number 18 uh, this morning. Now, would not have you ignorant brethren that oftentimes I purposed to come to you, but was led hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, today's message is going to be a little bit more teachy than preachy, let's say. I'm going to give you an idea of what the wrath of God is because this is laying a, sound, a solid foundation for what we're talking about because the next probably four to six weeks as we talk about the wrath of God, we're building on this foundation that we're getting laid solid last week and this week. So if you missed last week, you still got time to get caught up. I'm going to give you a little bit of a review here today. So many times we want to talk about the parts of God that make us comfortable. We want to talk about the parts of God that we really like. Hey, we want to talk about God's kindness, His mercy, His grace, His love for us. All those are parts of who God is, and we definitely should not keep those things back, for sure. We should celebrate them. Uh, God is a God of love. He is a God of grace. God loves everyone. God loves you individually. God loves you personally. Those are really, really good things. But so many times there's parts of God that we... We don't like to talk about. The parts of God that make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, that somebody asks questions about it, our faith. It's just one of those things that we might even try to minimize or play down about God. Uh, somebody says, well, do you believe that everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ as Savior is going to burn in hell for all of eternity? We're like, well, that's kind of a hard way to say it. Um, we believe that uh, God punishes sin. Hey, it, it, it's uncomfortable. I'll give you that, okay? But we can't hold back truth. We can't play down parts of God that make us feel uncomfortable. We can't just play up the good parts of God and then play down what we think are the bad parts because even things like the wrath of God or his judgment of sin is not a bad part of God that needs to be hidden from anybody. They need to know that so that they can see the wrath of God and how much greater God is because of his grace. So again, we're trying to get a total picture of who God is here uh, this morning, total understanding of how God views sin, total understanding of how God relates with us as sinful creatures. It's important, first of all, that we, as we get started, that we define what the wrath of God is. First of all, the word wrath itself is a strong, vengeful anger or indignation. It's retributory punishment for an offense or a crime. Important to note that, that wrath is always in response to something. It's, it's vengeful anger. There has been a wrong or a perception of wrong, therefore wrath comes. You don't stub your toe on the couch in the middle of the night and enter into a fit of wrath. You might get angry, but that's not wrath because it's not in response to a wrong that's been done. Uh, you might uh, you know, drop something in the kitchen and make a huge mess and you're angry or frustrated with yourself. That's not wrath because wrath is in response to a wrongdoing of some sort. 
So when we look at the wrath of God, the wrath of God is an expression of divine displeasure with human sin. So in this case, as we talk about wrath, we're talking about God's anger in response to mankind's sin. That's important to, to note that we even define sin. Sin is God set a standard, you and I broke it or fell short of it. God says, don't do this, we do it, that's a sin. And so anytime we fall short of God's law and don't fulfill it to the, the fullest, that's sin. And God has an anger response to our sinful condition. Now, we'll talk about that anger, what that looks like in just a moment. Another author put it this way, that the wrath of God is the free, subjective, and holy response of God to sin and the evil and wickedness exhibited by creatures in opposition to God. So again, it's important to understand about God, God doesn't get angry for no reason. God's not like you and I where, you know, he has uh, uh, so much that he can handle and then he loses his cool. God's not the type of God that has bad days, uh, who gets frustrated easily, or certain things just kind of set God off. That's not who God is. God is angry for one reason and one reason only, and that is sin, 100% of the time. So again, that's God's response to that. God's wrath is not so much a feeling or an emotion that God has. It's more of an action. It's his judgment on sin. Again, the idea that God's up in heaven, like waiting to get you back for the wrong things that you do, just isn't who God is. God's not waiting for you to mess up so that he can get angry and then punish you for what you've done wrong. Again, a misunderstanding of the wrath of God paints God as this angry father who's up in heaven. He's got a brown leather belt that's well worn that he's got in his hand that he wraps against his hand and says, try me, step out of line and see what happens. That's not who God is. Never has been, never will be. But the moment that you and I sin against God, the moment that you and I break God's law, God has to, is required to punish our sin. And so again, a misunderstanding of, of God's punishment even would be so, well, well, God's angry and he's mad at us, so he's wanting to get us back. No, God expects righteousness, doing the right thing, and when you and I sin, he has to punish sin. If you've ever had children before or raised children, you'll know that you have rules that you have to have set, and when your children break the rules, there has to be consequences. Not because you're a terrible parent or because you delight in being angry or delight in punishment, because your children need to learn a lesson that they can't do wrong and get away with it forever. By the same token, God's wrath is not meant to be his anger or frustration with you or I, or even with mankind. It's simply to show God has rules and when, they're, when they go broken, there must be punishment that comes as a result of that. Human anger is often a loss of self-control, whereas God's wrath is his calculated, intentional action against sin and his desire for justice. We, we, we make a mistake when we try to correlate God's wrath with our anger. This past uh, Thursday, I had a doctor's appointment that I had to go to, uh, and I had another appointment immediately after my doctor's appointment. Uh, the doctor's appointment was supposed to last like 10 minutes. It lasted like two hours. <laughs> One hour and 50 minutes I sat in the waiting room. Uh, and so I, I'm like big time in a rush. Uh, my doctor's office is a mile and a half from here. 
But how many of you know a mile and a half in Honolulu doesn't mean like five minutes, right? So I'm coming back, and I'm, I'm on Young Street up here by the 7-Eleven. I'm getting ready to cross over P.E. Coy so that I can hang a left on Pensacola and get back here. So I'm, I'm waiting at the red light at, um, at P.E. Coy. This Ford F-350 pulls up. Like right as the light turns yellow, he pulls up and blocks the entire intersection. And it's just like, I get a green light. I can't go because he's blocking the intersection. He's also blocking uh, the opposing traffic coming this way. He's blocked both lanes of traffic. And I'm sitting there, I'm frustrated, right? <laughs> I go from frustration to rage as my light, which is green, goes to yellow and then goes back to red. I lost it. I don't know what happened. Uh, I've already confessed it to God, so I can confess it to you. Like something inside of me welled up, and I felt like I was going to bend my steering wheel in half. I began to sweat. I was angry. I began to shake, and I began to scream. You just had to pull out, didn't you? You just had to make it. <laughs> that baby's feeling me over there like, yes, yes. It's, it's precisely how I felt. You just had to pull out, didn't you? You just had to block the intersection. You just had to wait. You didn't even make it through the intersection. You just had to, had to block traffic because you're in such a hurry. And like, I'm like, like, he's pulled up in front of me like where I can barely see him through the window. And I'm like leaning over so he sees me. Like I want him to say, and I'm like, my windows are up. He can't hear anything. But I'm, saying, I'm talking to him. He's like, you just had to. You just had to. And I'm like leaning over trying to make eye contact with him. And, and of course, he wouldn't make eye contact at all because he's a chicken and a coward. But <laughs> what happened? Somebody blocked an intersection. You're really going to get mad about that? Yeah, you know what it is? It's a loss of self-control. Was, was my anger righteous? Absolutely not. Was my anger petty? Absolutely. But man, something inside of me just, it, it snapped. And, and, and I couldn't hold it together any longer. Now, sometimes we get the idea that God's like that. Like, yeah, come on, try me. And then the second that we cross God, he just like lets us have it. That's not who God is. God has already determined, if you do this, I'm going to do this. It's calculated. It's already done in advance. It's, it's not a, a shock when God's wrath comes because his wrath comes directly in result to sin. If you sin, you will be punished. That's just how it works. That's how God's wrath works. Now, how do we appease God's wrath? When God uh, beget, gets angry with sin, how do we make things right with God? Well, in the Old Testament, there were three ways that you could do that. Now, it's important to understand the Old Testament, the first portion of the Bible that we have, the word testament literally means the word covenant. So when we think of the Old Testament, it's the Old Covenant. When we think of the New Testament, it is a New Covenant. And so things totally changed when Jesus Christ came and Jesus established a New Covenant that's totally different than all the covenants of the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, here's how God's wrath was appeased. First of all, by the death of the guilty. You broke the law, you will die. Adam and Eve, perfect example. In the Garden of Eden, God says you can do anything that you want. I don't even care. Just the tree in the middle of the garden, don't eat of the fruit. And so now Adam and Eve decided we're going to eat the fruit. And God says the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And so they ate the fruit. Guess what? You're going to die now because you broke God's law. Oftentimes we see also in the book of Leviticus that there's laws that God gave that were uh, cause for stoning. 
Uh, for example, if you killed another person, you're going to get stoned to death. Uh, if you committed adultery, adultery was punishable by death as well. <laughs> Here's how serious God is about not crossing him. Disobedient, rebellious parents that would backtalk their parents. You know what the punishment was? Anybody want to take a guess? Death. Well, that seems kind of harsh. Well, God requires punishment. Well, don't you think that's extreme? I think so, but I'm not God. And really, even laws like that that were on the books, you go, wow, that's really harsh of God, was just God setting up a system so that we would see that we can't make it on our own. The, the whole point of the law, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the whole point of that, you might not know this, but Deuteronomy is kind of a, a repetition of Leviticus because the word Deuteronomy literally means second law giving. So you got, you got Leviticus, which is a really hard book to read, and you got Numbers, which is good because it's got some stories built into it. And you get to Deuteronomy, it's basically a lot of Leviticus o- over again. But God gave us that law to show us like we're not good enough. We can't make it on our own. You and I can't be righteous enough to please God in any way. So uh, it's punishable by death. Second way that you could be uh, appease God's wrath was banishment, the exile of the guilty. You got to leave and don't ever come back. We see this happen with Cain. Uh, Cain and his brother Abel offered a sacrifice to God. Abel's sacrifice was acceptable. Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable. Cain got mad about it, so he killed his brother. After he killed his brother, God says, I'm going to put a mark on you so that everybody's going to know for the rest of your life what you've done, and you've got to leave. You've got to roam the earth for the rest of your days. You're not welcome here any longer. And so you see they were, people were cast out uh, because of, of their sin. The last way was animal sacrifice. We'll talk about this in just a little bit when we talk about uh, the sacrifice of animals for the atonement of sin. Just know this, every single time Someone broke God's law. Someone or something had to die, and you had to leave. That was just bottom line. Now, are there other instances where God's wrath could be appeased? Probably so, but these were the the main ways that we see it uh, in the Old Testament. Now, when we get to, uh, now again, it's important to understand that we talked about this last week, but it bears repeating as well. There is no God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. It's just God, okay? It's, it's foolish to think that the God of the Old Testament was wrath and then the God of the New Testament is grace. It doesn't work that way. It's the same God. God never changes. Uh, Jesus Christ, who is God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, one of the, the attributes of God is that he is immutable. That word immutable means he's unchanging. That's who God is. So there is no, people say, oh, I like the God of the New Testament a lot better than the Old Testament God. Ha, ha, ha. There is no Old Testament God and New Testament God. There's just God. And again, if you, if you say, I like the God of the New Testament a lot better, you're just showing that you don't really understand who God is in totality because it's the same God. God showed wrath and grace in the Old Testament. God showed wrath and grace in the New Testament. God today in our current day and age, who is the God, quote, of the New Testament, is still a God of wrath and is still a God of grace. It's not that clean delineation that people want to sometimes make. But God's wrath is appeased differently under the rules of the Old Covenant versus the rules of the New Covenant. Under the rules of the New Covenant or the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the propitiation for sin. <laughs> that word propitiation is such a rich word. If you get your Bibles open, still turn to Romans chapter 3, if you would. You've got to see this. This is just so good. Romans 
Romans chapter 3, verse number, let's back up to verse 22 because it's so good here. Romans chapter 3, verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all to them that believe. Just stop right there for just a second. Verse 22 is so good because it says this, God's righteousness is given to us how? By faith. In who? In Jesus. To who? Anyone who believes. For there's no difference. Nobody can be better than anyone else. Verse 23 tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That tells us, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's not any single one of us that are good enough in God's standard. So that's why it's even more beautiful that he gives us his grace. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace. Not because you deserve it, but because God is gracious through the redemption that's in who? That's in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, this is so good. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. That's a loaded verse. Uh, we're going to get to uh, pick pick bits and pieces of it this morning. But here's the idea behind propitiation. First of all, if you have a, a different translation of the, the English translation of the Bible, you might have the word atoning sacrifice in place of propitiation. I believe that's an error. That's, that's, that's not right because atoning sacrifice is a softer word for propitiation. Propitiation carries full weight with it. I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. That's why, again, for us here at Huicala, we use the King James Version of the Bible. If you want to know why, I'd be happy to tell you later. Uh, it's a, it's a, one of the better translations in English. Uh, but some translations take deep Bible words like justification and redemption and propitiation that are just power-packed with theology and soteriology, and they dumb them down to words that are easier or more common to understand. Uh, I would challenge you, if you come across a Bible word you don't understand, pick up a Bible dictionary. Uh, we have some on the shelf here. You can download some to your phone if you want to. Study the Bible. Become a Bible scholar. You should be a theologian. Uh, it's, uh, again, we're not going to play Sunday school here for you and make it really dumb so that everybody can understand it. We want you to grow and mature in your knowledge of God. So I'm going to break down what propitiation is for you here this morning because it's so good. Propitiation harkens back to the days of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant where to satisfy the wrath of God, there had to be an animal sacrifice. They had to kill an animal. So there was a special day for that. It was known as the Day of Atonement. Jews still celebrate this day to this day. It's called Yom Kippur. Day of Atonement, this is the day that your sins can be made right with God as a country, as a people, for all who are willing to uh, participate in this day. What happens is the priest goes into the Holy of Holies, which is the, the most sacred place that there ever was because it's where the Spirit of God would dwell. It's a special room inside the temple as the Jews were traveling in the wilderness, uh, they didn't have a temple built in one particular location, so they set up a tent that they called the tabernacle. And it was kind of like a mobile temple that they could break up, break down and put back up. Inside that tabernacle or the temple was this room, the Holy of Holies. Inside there was the Spirit of God. You could not just walk in there. If you just walked across the threshold into the Holy of Holies uh, unannounced, you would be struck dead immediately because you'd be in the presence of God. So for the, the priest to be able to go in there to make a sacrifice for the people on this day of atonement, what he would have to do is he would have to first and foremost confess all of his sin. He confesses his sin before God. He makes a sacrifice for his own sins so that he can be 100% clean between he and God. Secondly, 
he takes this ceremonial cleansing. It's kind of a, like a, a deep bath that he would take of, of cleaning himself from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. Then he would place on special garments uh, that were the priest's garments for going in to, to be in within the presence of God's spirit. Really, really big deal that he would go through to offer this sacrifice on the day of atonement. On the day of atonement, there would be two animals that we'd take in with him to the Holy of Holies. One of those would be, it would either be a goat or a lamb, depending on what they had at that time. It had to be a perfect animal, without spot, without blemish. It had to be perfect. It couldn't have like a, a bum hoof. It couldn't have a bad leg. It couldn't be, have spots on it or be dirty or be one of the old ones. It had to be a young, fresh, perfect, without spot or blemish animal to be taken into, to be made sacrifice of. As the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, in there would be the Ark of the Covenant. On the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant had, had two angels with their wings outstretched and their faces covered by their wings. This area on the top of the Ark of the Covenant was known as the mercy seat. So the priest would take the sins of the people and he would confess them aloud. Everything that he knew that the people had done wrong and he would confess it aloud before God. And he would place his hands upon that mercy seat and symbolically place the sins of the people upon the mercy seat before God so that the sins of all the people were completely and totally exposed. Then he would take the first lamb and he would slit its throat. And he would take the blood of the animals. The blood began to gush out. He'd take that blood and he would put it upon the mercy seat and sprinkle upon the mercy seat as a covering for sin. Again, remember, anytime you sin, anytime I sin, somebody has to die. So in this case here, it was a lamb that was given. And so this lamb was bled out, blood covered the sins of the people so that when God looked down from heaven and saw the sins of the people, they were now covered by a sacrifice that was acceptable to God of blood so that he no longer saw the sins of the people. He only saw the sacrifice that was acceptable to him. But while this covered the sins of the people, it really did nothing with God's wrath. God's wrath must now be diverted or sent away. And the way that God made a way for that is to have this second lamb or second goat. To have the sins of the people confessed on this second animal. Again, place his hands upon this animal and symbolically placing the sins of the people here now again on top of this goat so that the wrath of God could be dealt with on that goat. Then that goat was led out into the wilderness, sometimes referred to as the escape goat, where we get our word scapegoat, where the blame of someone else is placed on someone else and they bear the responsibility and consequences of it. That's where, that's where we get our word scapegoat from, from this particular act that would happen on the Day of Atonement. The, the goat or the lamb would then be led out into the wilderness never to be seen again not allowed to come back. Take it out so far that it never, ever, ever comes back to us. As a picture of God's judgment on sin, how it would be cast away, and you and I can be cleansed, and our sin never comes back to us ever again. That was the picture there that would happen. Now I can imagine being a Jew in that day, thinking to myself, like, we got this animal that's about to die over here. Can we, like, sacrifice that instead? Why does it have to be perfect? Why does it have to be spotless? 
Can we do double duty and like, like bleed out a little bit, not kill the animal, and then lead that one out to take it away? Why do we have to like kill two animals? I can imagine in their minds not being able to rationalize that. Why a good animal? Why? Because all of this was a setup for the future. All of this was a picture of setting the stage of what Jesus Christ would do for you and for I. All of this was to show later that the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God would suffer and bleed and die as a covering for our sin. And he would take our sins as far as the east is from the west and God would remember them no more. All that comes from the Old Testament. What does it have to do with propitiation? Propitiation is a Bible word that doesn't get used in regular vernacular that calls back to the Day of Atonement. It's a picture that word propitiation is an English word that calls back to a covering on the mercy seat for the sins of mankind. So when we talk about Christ being a propitiation for us, again, Romans chapter 3, verse 25, see this again this morning, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare the righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. All that's a picture of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us, just like the lambs that were slain every single year prior. And so, I mean, literally thousands and thousands of lamb sacrifices were made. But not any longer. It's interesting that this second goat that would have to be sent out into the wilderness never to be received ever again back to his own people because he bore the weight of the sins of the people. It was required that this animal would be taken outside of the city gates and left outside to die. It's interesting to note that when our Savior was crucified, where did they take him? They crucified him in the middle of Jerusalem. No, they took him outside the city gates and they left him to suffer and bleed and die out there. All, again, all of this was a perfect prophecy of precisely what would happen in Jesus Christ so that he could be our propitiation for sin. When we talk about propitiation, propitiation deals first of all with the covering of sin just like the, uh, the sins were covered on the mercy seat. Jesus Christ has covered our sin. If you're a child of God, if you've been saved and born again, you do not bear the full weight of your sin any longer. Jesus has covered it. And when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the perfect sacrifice of his son. Your sin is invisible to God because it's been covered. Psalm 82 Verse number, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 85, verse number two says, Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of the people, and thou hast covered all their sin. Selah. Man, God's forgiven it, and he's covered it up. That's the beautiful thing also about our sin being taken away by Jesus Christ. This isn't going to come back to me one day. This isn't going to come back and bite me because it's already been forgiven. It's already under the blood of Jesus Christ. And I don't bear the weight of that any longer. And friend, if you're here today and you've blown it in life like I have so many times, that's not on you anymore. It's 100% on Christ. And he's strong enough to bear the weight of your failures. You want to carry guilt and shame? That's up to you. But according to God, it's been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you're free from that. Propitiation deals not only with the covering of sin, but propitiation deals with the turning away of God's wrath. Again, that second goat or lamb that was sent out into the wilderness to die 
as a way of turning away God's wrath. God's wrath now is no longer on you or I. It's on the object of the sacrifice. That's why John the Baptist in John 1.29 says, when he saw Jesus Christ, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Man, what, what an incredible truth. We talk about propitiation, turning away or appeasing the wrath of God. It's really, really, really important to understand this. Propitiation, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is covering for our sin and turning away the wrath of God, does not change the wrath of God into the love of God. Some people misunderstand God's grace that way. This is not a transition where now propitiation transforms the wrath of God into the love of God. That's not the case at all. Because please understand this, God never stopped loving. It's not like God was angry and now he chooses to love because you're forgiven. No, no, God never stopped loving, ever. God has always been love. And we took a look at this last week, but it's important to, to mention again this week that wrath is not one of God's essential characteristics. God is not love and God is also, on the other hand, wrath. Wrath is only in response to sin. If there is no sin, there is no wrath. God only gets angry with sin. So if there ever is a cessation or a ceasing of sin, God will cease to, to have wrath. God is mercy. He is love. He is justice. He is grace. But God is not wrath. And so it's important to understand that you have God's love which never stops. You have God's wrath which comes in response to sin. But the moment that God's wrath is appeased, his wrath is gone and there is still love. So some it might appear that we, we did a change here. There was never a change because God never stopped loving. God will never stop loving. It's who he is. So it's, it's really important that we understand the wrath of God is not God is just, just angry old codger up in heaven that wants things his way or the highway. It's not God sitting around waiting with great anticipation to punish you or I. It's not a matter of God sets his love to the side so that God can be wrath. God is wrath because of his love. And he never stops loving because that's who God is. Propitiation deals with the cleansing of sin, thus affirming the holiness of God and his desire for justice. God requires that everything be made right. Everything. Now, you and I might not get the justice that we want, the days that we want, how we want, when we want, but please understand, God always gets justice. That's why God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He's going to make everything right. You and I don't have to make things right. But here's the important thing to note. God still requires justice. Hey, you do the crime, you do the time. That's how God functions. You break the law, you pay the consequences. You sin against God, you'll get the punishment. That's just how God works because God is holy. Again, holiness is part of God's essential attributes. It's who God is. God is holiness, God is not wrath. God is holiness that requires him to be separate from anything that has to do with sin. So you and I cannot continue to live a lifestyle of sin, yet not endure the judgment of God because God is holy. God requires justice. Again, we talked about this last week, but what good is law if there are no consequences? Well, you should drive 55 
on the road, but if you don't, I mean, at least you should. That'd be kind of silly, wouldn't it? Can you imagine in the United States, taxes, you should pay them, but if you don't, I mean, there's nothing really we can do about it. So you're saying taxes are optional? No, they're, they're still the law. There's just no consequences if you break the law. <laughs> I'm never paying taxes again for the rest of my life, right? Why? Because law always requires enforcement. It always requires uh, for, for the legislative part to work, there has to be a judicial part as well. And God is a God of justice. If God sets a law legislative, he also has to enforce the law judicial. So again, this might sound harsh to people. Again, it's why we need to understand the wrath of God. God's wrath of God, the wrath of God is so beautiful because it is, it's equally balanced. God's wrath along with his love and mercy and willingness to forgive instantly. You see, when somebody wrongs me and I, I want to handle it my way, you can say that you're sorry, but I want to see that you're sorry. I want to see you change. I might even, in my flesh, want you to grovel a little bit. And remember that I'm up here and you're down there just so that you always know your place. That's me. God's not like that. One of the greatest verses in all of the Bible, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin... He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know why? You know why God doesn't want to punish you and I? Because he's already punished Jesus. Why would he do double punishment? That doesn't make sense. And so God's wrath is perfectly balanced by his love, his mercy, and his willingness to forgive instantaneously. When we talk about God's wrath for those of us that are saved here today, there's been a time in your life where you've been born again it's important to understand that God's wrath is withheld from those who are saved. This should be a blessing and encouragement to you this morning. Now, please understand, there's still a penalty for sin. There always will be. And if you hear nothing else today, if you've been checked out for a minute, check back in because I'm going to say something. And when I finish this, you can check back out if you want to. Okay, hear this though. When you sin, not if you sin, when you sin, there's only two options. You can pay or someone else can pay for you. But somebody has to die. You're supposed to die. I'm supposed to die. We deserve that. But God, Romans 5, 8, commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us. And that we, while we were yet sinners, hear this, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus already died for me. He died for you. And so, Either you can die and pay for your sins in hell for all of eternity, or you can allow Jesus to pay the price for you. Well, how do I get Jesus to pay the price for me? Faith and repentance. And again, if you hear nothing else, hear this today. If you'd like to be forgiven of your sin once and for all, not something you have to do every week, definitely not a Yom Kippur once a year, once and for all, if you want to do that, do this. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you've got to believe it with your whole heart. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he's the only way to heaven. I'm asking him to save me and forgive me of my sins. And my hope is in Jesus alone. If you'd be willing to confess that before God today and really mean it, you can be saved right now. You don't have to walk up to the front of a church. You don't have to talk with a pastor. 
You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to go to a class. Faith and repentance, that's it. And you can be born again. And here's the thing. All of that wrath for sin immediately gets pulled back. God was waiting to pour it out, but he's withholding it. For those of us that are saved, you'll never see the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 2, verse number 7, By them who patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the faith, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 5, For this you know that no whoremonger nor unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon who? The children of disobedience. God's wrath is coming for the children of disobedience, but that's not me any longer. I'm now a child of God. Before I met Jesus, before I was saved, before I was born again, I was a child of disobedience. Jesus also called these the children of wrath. You know why? Because God is waiting to pour out his punishment on you. Romans chapter 5, verse number 9, much more than now being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So if you're a child of God, you'll never see wrath. That's a blessing and encouragement. You know why? One reason and one reason only. Because your wrath was already taken care of by somebody else, and his name was Jesus. You see, here's what happened. Jesus came, lived a perfectly sinless life, and took upon himself the sins of mankind. And he went to the cross for it. He had to. He had to bleed. He had to die. And so as he took on the sins of you and I, the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became sin for us. Just like that goat would take on the sins of mankind, just like the sins would be placed upon the mercy seat, all that, the world's sin, was placed upon Jesus in that moment. And because God is holy, God separated himself from his son for the first and only time in all of eternal history. Why? Because what's separating them now? Sin. Whose sin? Mine. Yours. That's what separates God from his son. And as Jesus hung there on the cross, crucified, after he had endured a massive beating that left him near the point of death, as he had a crown of thorns that was shoved down on his brow where all of your veins and capillaries and on your head where it just began to bleed into his eyes and he had been beaten to the point where he probably couldn't see straight and definitely didn't even look like a man, Isaiah tells us. He hung there in incredible Physical pain. We get our word excruciating from the word cross, crucifixion. That's how bad it was. But that wasn't the worst of it. There were two other guys that had the same thing going on that day. Jesus, at that point, was feeling the full weight of the wrath of God poured out upon him in that moment. And he cried out and he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he knew. He knew precisely that was coming because hours earlier he knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass. What cup? What cup? The cup of God's wrath. 
about to be poured out upon him. He's like, hey, if this cup can go somewhere else, I'm willing to do that, but not my will done, but yours. And Jesus willingly went to the cross knowing for a, a full fact that the full wrath and weight of God would be poured out upon him for the sins of mankind at that moment. And he did it willingly. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's why so that you and I that are children of God that have been saved and born again trust in the sacrifice of Jesus as payment for my sins. I don't have to pay for my sin any longer. Jesus already paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain but he washed it white as snow. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the the blood of Calvary's lamb. Did you hear what we sang this morning? This isn't Christian karaoke. We're singing about the, the sacrifice of Christ. Heavens. Now please understand, if you're a child of God, you'll never see God's wrath. So you think you can get away with sinning against God? Nope, never have, never will. God has something special for his children called chastisement. If you're interested in reading it, read Hebrews chapter 12. Think of it this way. If you have children, you spank your own children. You don't spank other people's children, right? <laughs> Get put in jail for that. God's the same way. He doesn't spank kids that don't belong to him. He gives them his wrath. God doesn't give wrath to his children. You know what God does with his children? He spanks his children when they get out of line. That's chastisement, loving discipline. Hey, bud, don't do this anymore. Get your act together. So you and I won't see God's wrath. But for those that are not saved, what about them? The good news for you today here is if you're here and you're not saved or you don't know for sure that you're saved, the good news for you is that God is forbearing in his wrath for the unsaved. Forbearance is a Bible word. I'd never actually come across the word forbearance until uh, I was uh, a newlywed. Angel and I had just first gotten married. For those of you who don't know, we met in, uh, or we started dating in January. We'd known each other for, for a few months before that. We started dating in January. We got married in the middle of May. I don't encourage that timeline for anybody. It's worked out for us. God's been really gracious. But I would encourage you to kick the tires a little bit longer uh, and, and get some good wisdom, you know. Uh, my wife, if she had a chance to kick the tires, I don't know that she would make the same choice twice, but I would. Uh, but... Um, Anyways, we didn't get any premarital counseling. We didn't talk about a lot of stuff. We were just young and dumb and in love and, and thought that we could make it. Uh, and by the grace of God, we had not through any power of our own for sure. But we had been married for probably about two months and um, I'm putting together the bills for the month to, to pay. And she's like, oh, by the way, I have some student loans. Well, that would have been helpful to know like a couple of months ago, but uh, okay. And she says, but here's the deal. I can apply for student loan forbearance. I said, what does that mean? It means that you don't have to pay your student loans for 12 to 24 months, and it gives you a chance to kind of get yourself together so that you can make the payment that you need to make and, and do what you need to do. If we can wait on paying these and like hit the pause button, I'm all for that. So that's exactly what we did. We put up, applied for forbearance. We got it. We didn't have to make a payment for like two years. It was awesome. Here's the thing when we think about the forbearance of God. God is holding back his wrath and punishment for your sin for a minute to give you a chance to get your act together. But forbearance doesn't last forever. You can't push it off forever. And what I found out after forbearance was over is that the interest on those student loans continued to accumulate during the period of forbearance. 
perfect example of the wrath of God. You know why? Because God is willing to hold back his wrath, but please understand you're continuing to accrue a balance on the back end of God's wrath that the moment that forbearance is over, you're going to feel the full weight of God's wrath and punishment on you for all of eternity, and there's not going to be any letting up at that point. So when the Bible says that God is forbearing in his wrath, that's precisely what he's talking about. He's literally holding back his wrath, waiting for you to come to him and make things right. God doesn't delight in wrath. God doesn't even delight in the death of terrible people. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Bible says. God doesn't enjoy wrath. God wishes wrath wasn't even a thing. So he's holding it back as long as he can. So if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, God is waiting for you to come to him, but he's not going to wait forever because the moment you take your last breath here on planet earth, there is no more forbearance. There is no more mercy. There is no more grace. There is only judgment. Romans chapter two, verse number four, or despises the richness and goodness and forbearance and long suffering, knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Romans chapter 9, you hear in Romans, just turn over to Romans chapter 9, verse 22. I want you to see this for just a second. I could quote it for you, it's in your notes, but I want you to see it with your own eyeballs. Romans chapter 9, verse number 22. Romans 9, 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. So imagine this. Back in the day, potters would make vessels that they carried things like oil and stuff like that in. Uh, They didn't have like milk jugs like we do, so they'd have pitchers or vessels. And sometimes they would get like big pitchers, like big vessels, like like tall, like like a big flower pot that you might see. And they would fill those up and those would be vessels. Here's what God's done. God set up a bunch of vessels like that full of wrath how much like warehouses full think of it that way why take a look at verse 23 he's going to show his wrath and he wants to make his power known and he's endured with much long suffering he's waiting with these vessels of wrath fitted to destruction take a look at verse number 23 though and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom God hath called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. So imagine this. While God over here has a bunch of vessels, warehouses full of wrath stored up, he also over here has warehouses full of mercy full up. Vessels full of mercy. And what if God, to show how gracious he is, says, I'm not going to give wrath, I'm only going to give mercy. I'm not going to punish, I'm only going to forgive. I'm not going to pour out my anger, I'm going to give a whole lot of grace. That's precisely what God's doing for you and I. We deserve the wrath. God's willing to extend the mercy, but he's not going to do it forever. You have a chance to come to Jesus, and your opportunity is today. And friend, if you die in your sin, there's nothing on the other side of this life but wrath for you. 
The full force of God's wrath has already been settled by Jesus. It was poured out on Jesus on the cross. That's why you and I that are saved will never see wrath. God doesn't punish us for our sin because Jesus has already been punished. So you and I that are children of God are free from wrath because Jesus has already endured the wrath of God on our behalf. The full force of God's wrath will be poured out during the tribulation period in the final judgment. This isn't a message on eschatology, but I'll give you a, a quick rundown of it. Jesus Christ is coming back very, very soon. How soon? I don't know, but they thought he was coming back 2,000 years ago. But again, a day with man is a thousand with the Lord, and a thousand years with the Lord is a day with man. So uh, again, our timetable is not God's timetable. He's doing his thing, and whenever he wants, he's coming back. But it's very soon, so you better get ready. Here's what happens. Jesus Christ descends from heaven with a shout. He'll meet us in the air. He does not come back to earth. That's not the second coming of Christ. It's appearing of Christ in the clouds. And all those that are saved will rise to meet him in the air. We refer to this as the rapture. Rapture is not a, a, a Bible word. It's a word that we use to explain a catching away that takes place. We'll meet Christ in the clouds and we'll go to heaven to be with him. Now, if everybody is who is saved leaves planet Earth, the only people that are left are is everybody who's not saved, right? Then begins a period of God's wrath for mankind at that point because the only people that are left are those that are not saved or are the enemies of God. And so God's wrath will be poured out on a seven-year period here on planet Earth called the Great Tribulation. Uh, the devil and the Antichrist will form a one-world government. There'll be a one-world currency and, uh, and there'll be a one-world religion. Many will be deceived by this. There will be some during this period who will be saved, but those people will be put to death and will be uh, imprisoned for their faith during this time. God's plagues will be poured out for seven years. It will be the worst thing that you can possibly imagine, almost literally hell on earth. During that seven-year period, those of us that are saved will be in heaven celebrating with Jesus Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the end of that seven-year period, God will, Jesus Christ will come back to earth in bodily form. That's the second coming of Christ. At the end of that seven-year tribulation period, God, in the form of Jesus Christ, will come down to hev from heaven to earth to Jerusalem. Jesus and his armies, which will be us with him, will utterly destroy, wipe out, kill every single thing that's on planet Earth. We sound, so that sounds really harsh. The only people left are the enemies of God at that point. The devil and the Antichrist will be locked up for 1,000 years. At what point Jesus Christ will be king of this earth in literal bodily form, ruling from the throne of David in Jerusalem. At the end of that 1,000-year period, there will be a judgment on Satan, the Antichrist, and all those who were the enemies of God. So that's, again, brief timeline that we have there of that. If you've got more questions, I'd be happy to, to, to answer any questions you have later. Uh, but that's kind of a picture of God's wrath being poured out during this period of time. Uh, again, we don't have a lot of time, but I just want to highlight a couple of verses. Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel and wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Matthew chapter 3, verse number 7, when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Zephaniah chapter 1, verse number 14, the great day of the Lord is near, it's near and hasteth greatly. 
Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty men shall cry there bitterly. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble, and a day of distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. Again, we're talking bad, bad, bad stuff. Jesus says in Luke chapter 21, verse number 23, but woe unto them that are with child in that day, and to them that give suck, or them that nurse babies in those days. For there shall be a great distress on the land and the wrath upon this people. It's going to be bad like you can't imagine. How do you make sure that you miss all that? Put your faith in Jesus, because Jesus, uh, God's word has promised that he will not allow his holy ones to see wrath, that we're saved from wrath to come through Jesus Christ. Now, the full force of God's wrath will be poured out in hell for all of eternity. If you die without Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will go to hell and you will endure the wrath of God there. That's how you make things right with God. Your only other option is your faith in Jesus. So again, Pastor, do I hear you right? Everyone that doesn't accept Jesus Christ as Savior will burn in hell one day. That's precisely what the Bible says. Now again, it's going to be hard to go to work tomorrow morning it's like, Hey, Mark, did you know that if you don't get saved, you're going to burn in hell? I don't encourage that. It's not really a well-received evangelism tactic, I would say. But again, we can't tell people about Jesus without explaining the truth of it. Again, hopefully in a very kind, calm, compassionate, loving conversation. God can't allow your sin to go unpunished. One of these days you're going to have to answer for what you've done before God unless you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. But understand the hell is a reality. Revelation chapter 20, verse number 12. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Get this. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's no joke, folks. How do you get your name in the book? Receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Your name gets written in the book of life. And, and God himself says, no man can blot your name out of my book. Once you make a reservation, it's a permanent reservation. But if you don't have a reservation, there's only one place for you, and that's God's wrath. Again, Jesus says... Matthew 25, then it shall say unto them on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus says these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. There's only two places. Jesus says the unsaved will go to wrath eternal. The saved will go to life eternal. That's it. Heaven and hell. Only two places. So again, if you're not saved, today is your opportunity to be saved. Again, the wrath of God is already on those that are, are unsaved. John chapter 3, verse number 23, or no, no, John three thirty six. He that hath the Son hath life, he that hath not the Son hath not life, and the wrath of God abides on him. So if you're here today without Jesus, or you're not sure that you're saved, please understand, the wrath of God is already hanging over your head. The wrath of God is already a weight on your shoulders. The wrath of God is currently being held back by God and his mercy and forbearance for you. But the moment you take your last breath, all that is set free where you will endure the full wrath of God. I don't want that for you. God doesn't want that for you. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So again, if you're not saved, be saved today. 
Now, why do we talk about hard things like the wrath of God? First of all, understanding the wrath of God is critical for the understanding of the character of God. We're winding things down. This is the end. I'm getting ready to land the plane. Get your tray tables up and your seats in the right, right position. This is the end of it, all right? Listen. You can't understand how gracious God is. God giving you things that you don't deserve. Well, why is that a big deal? Because you have to, first of all, understand what you really deserve. I can't understand how gracious God is if I don't realize all I deserve is death and hell. Look, I need to understand the grace of God, and the grace of God is only beautiful in light of the wrath of God. If I don't understand how bad my punishment was, I'm not going to understand how good my blessings are. I just you, you got to have both. And so you and I need to understand the wrath of God. It's critical to understanding who God is. And again, people that think that like, oh, if I walked in your church, the, the walls would fall down. Man, if I, if I came into church, I'd get struck by lightning. That's not who God is. God wants you to come to him. God wants you to know him. God wants you to be forgiven. God is waiting to forgive you. Well, you don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. God is waiting to forgive you. All you have to do is turn to him. That's it. Understanding the wrath of God is critical for understanding God's attitude towards sin. Shame on any pastor who would say, well, God created you the way that you are and he doesn't expect you to change because he made you like you are. God forbid... Any man, if you be in Christ, be a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Please understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, best news you'll ever heard. Jesus died for sinners so that he took their punishment on your behalf. That's the gospel. But to say you can continue in your sin and you don't have to change, it's not that big of a deal. You know what that is? That's the anti-gospel. That's the opposite of the gospel. That's a false gospel to say you just can continue to sin as much as you want. God's a God of grace. He just forgives. Oh, wrath? That's like an Old Testament thing. God doesn't do that anymore. New Testament, God's just all grace. So wherever you're at, you're forgiven. God loves you. Celebrate who you are in God because God made you that way. Oh, no, 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 no. The moment that you and I celebrate sin, we make a mockery of the cross. Jesus' wretched death upon the cross was for one purpose, to deliver us from our sin. God forbid we celebrate it. What? So again, we need to, as we look at the wrath of God, understand God's attitude towards sin. God hates sin. 100% of the time, and you can call it what you want. You can call it bad habits. You can call it shortcomings. You can call it failures. But God calls it sin, and he hates it. And here's what I want for you. I want for you to hate your sin as much as God hates your sin. You know, it's easy to hate other people's sin. <laughs> That's really easy. You know, as if you've ever had the unfortunate uh, case of driving through Waikiki and seeing prostitutes out walking the the, the sidewalk out there. It's sad to see. It's sickening. It's disgusting. And usually within probably about a, a hundred yards or so, there's some guy with sunglasses on at night standing on the, leaning up against a, a trash can or a, a bike rack. And you're like, 
That's a stinking pimp. It's easy to get angry at that. You know why? I've never hired a prostitute. I hate human trafficking. I hate sex slavery. I hate the idea of people being property of someone else. I hate that with every fiber of my being. But you know what I don't hate so much? <laughs> Getting mad at people that pull out in front of me in the intersection. <laughs> I don't get mad at that. I get mad at the guy that pulled out in front of me, right? It's easy to hate other people's sins. It's easy to hate sin by proxy. Oh, yeah, can you believe all this stuff that's going on in our world? Shame on them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to get mad at that. Well, how about we get mad at our own sin first? Before you start holding signs and picking it against other people's signs, why don't we hate your own sin first? That's what, is that what Jesus says? Hey, if your brother's got a speck in his eye, you should probably grab the log out of yours first before you can give him a hand. That's what he says. Hate your own sin first. Now, is it okay to be angry with sin? Absolutely. We should be angry with sin. The fact that, that women and children are sold into sexual slavery for gratification, that should cause something us in us up to be angry. Oh, I can't believe that that's happening in places like you know, Thailand and Cambodia. No, 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 it's happening in our city. It happens here. Sexual slavery of children in our city. That should bother you. But here's what the Bible says, be angry and sin not. I praise God for what the Supreme Court did with, with Roe versus Wade. I praise God for the babies that will be saved as a result of that. I really do. I don't know that it'll make a huge difference for the state of Hawaii because Hawaii is quick to murder as many kids as they want up to nine months. And a 14-year-old girl that doesn't have to get consent from her parents. Like my daughter's 13. If she needs to take a Tylenol at school, I have to go either sign a waiver that they put on, for, on file in the office and they have to call me every time she takes a Tylenol. If my 13-year-old daughter got pregnant with the Planned Parenthood, they would sign her up for Medicaid so that the state taxpayers of the state of Hawaii would pay for her abortion and they would do everything that they could to ensure that her parents never found out. That happens in our city. Your tax dollars pay for that. And before you decide to go get bent out of shape at the, the brand new, beautiful Planned Parenthood that's on Baratania Street, which is less than a mile from here, please understand, I found this out last year, shocked, number one abortion provider in the state of Hawaii, University of Hawaii Medical School. Wait, what? Yeah, tax dollars at work. That makes me angry. You're killing kids with my tax dollars? Like, I can't get potholes fixed on streets and you're killing kids with my tax dollars? And teenagers? Up to nine months? God forgive us for just sitting by and going, yeah, that's terrible. I, I pray every single day that God would end abortion in our state. And I think we're making good progress as a nation for sure. I saw this past week that the largest abortion provider in Texas packed up all four of their offices, closed them, and moved to New Mexico. I, I praise God for that. But here's the thing, we can't just sit back and not hate the things that God hates, it's, it's sin. Final thought for you and I, and I want you to take this with you this week, understanding the satisfaction of God's wrath by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross helps us to live lives of gratitude and worship. Man, you know what, I sing a little bit louder, you know why? Because I know that I've been redeemed. Since I have been redeemed, I will glory in my Savior's name. I have a home prepared for me since I have been redeemed. 
I sing a little bit louder. I sing a little bit louder when I talk about the name of Jesus. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. The heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. Like, yes. You know why? Because I realize what that sacrifice means to me. And I don't just get fired up like that when I, I sing songs. I get fired up like that when I open God's Word in the morning. I get fired up like that when I'm just looking at my children and I see, I don't deserve this. I deserve wrath. I look around at our church family and people that I consider closer to me than my own family. And I look around and I see that and say, I don't deserve this. This is God's grace in my life because I just deserve wrath. But God, I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful. God, forgive me when I want a nicer car or a nicer house or stuff. Because all I deserve is wrath. God, forgive me when I feel entitled to get stuff from you. You've given me breath in my lungs for a day. Let me praise you with my dying breath. Why? Because I get the wrath of God. I get what I deserve. I understand that I I don't deserve to be forgiven at all. I I don't deserve good stuff from God at all. Because I know wrath. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, please don't hit the double doors in the back until you know 100% certain that your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. If you don't know that for sure, we'll have a guy sit down with a guy, a lady sit down with a lady. Open the Bible and tell you how from the Bible you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven. It'll be the most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church Podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.